I mean, I'm glad there was not a right-wing takeover, but we end up with a Republican, a Rockefeller Republican in blackface with uh, Barack Obama. So that our struggle in regard to poverty intensifies. Richard Nixon is to the left of him on health care. Richard Nixon is to the left of him on guaranteed income. And the same policies in terms of imperial foreign policy is at work. That was Cornell West, whose voice you may have recognized and whose name you may recognize as an author, professor at Harvard University, and social critic. West has been in the news lately for very public criticism of author Ta-Nehisi Coates, whom he called a neoliberal, and he did not mean that as a compliment. As you can tell from that opening excerpt from an interview that West did with the show Democracy Now!, West has also been a longtime critic of President Barack Obama, whom he's criticized for, as best I can tell, not being more of a left-wing populist. In this episode of Tatter, I'm going to explore some issues raised by these criticisms, and I'm going to explore them in conversation with several political scientists. The big question is, if President Obama had been more of a left-wing populist in his first term, then would he have been a one-term president? This episode of Tatter is titled, 2012. On January 9th, 2017, shortly before the inauguration of President Donald Trump, West wrote in The Guardian, and I quote, The age of Barack Obama may have been our last chance to break from our neoliberal soulcraft. And he goes on to say, A few of us begged and pleaded with Obama to break with the Wall Street priorities and bail out Main Street. But he followed the advice of his smart neoliberal advisors, smart as in scare quotes, of course, to bail out Wall Street. In March 2009, Obama met with Wall Street leaders. He proclaimed, I stand between you and the pitchforks. I am on your side and I will protect you, he promised them. And not one Wall Street criminal executive went to jail, end quote. It's clear that Cornell West does not consider the term neoliberal to be at all a compliment. But what exactly does this term neoliberal mean? Well, it's uh, one of those things that I think a lot of people treat as being in the eye of the beholder or a term that's, you know, subject to so much abuse that it's completely lost all meaning. That's Christopher Federico, professor of psychology and political science at the University of Minnesota. Uh, I wouldn't quite go that far. I would say that it is kind of overused sometimes as an epithet, but uh, the meaning of it to, you know, most people in social science is pretty clear. It's sort of an economic model that uh, emphasizes the market, the market mechanism, uh, and, you know, seeks to minimize uh, state involvement. Uh, So, you know, it's kind of the free market model that, you know, folks my age would have gotten used to having grown up in the Reagan and Thatcher era. So I think that meaning of it is uh, relatively clear and relatively consensual. Uh, a lot of people kind of have suggested that, you know, this isn't just a uh, guiding philosophy on the right anymore. It's also sort of become the default on the center-left ever since uh, Bill Clinton in the United States and uh, 
Tony Blair in uh, Great Britain, and to some extent people have argued that uh, Barack Obama um, kind of carried forth that uh, uh, model for how to manage the economy as opposed to you know, an older, more redistributionist model or something like that. Now, as we take up the big question of whether Obama could have been a liberal populist and elected to a second term as president, I want to turn to Julia Azari, who is a professor of political science at Marquette University and a regular contributor to the political science blog, The Mischiefs of Faction. I'll start with the question of how left-wing populism has fared in the national stage in U.S. politics. Now, how many presidents have we had who really embraced a left-wing populist approach to to start maybe with the economy? I think that's a pretty small number. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, that might be a zero number. If you look at, there's a political scientist named John Gehring who's written about historical party ideology, um, and he identifies the Democrats from like the 1890s up through um, Harry Truman as a as a populist party. And so by that definition, FDR and Truman both kind of had a leftist orientation in their economic policies. And that, you know, that worked well for, for FDR during the depression, although it, it engendered all the kinds of, of critiques from the business community and critiques around, you know, socialism, um, communism, you know, taking over private industry kind of, um, remarks that, um, that we sometimes see with more contemporary Democrats. So that's the first thing I would sort of say is like, if we're going to set the stage for how well does economic populism fare on the national stage, I would say there's, there's some questions there. On the other hand, we did see the economic populist base in the Democratic Party emerge during Obama's time in office. And I think there's a lot of questions we don't know the answer to there. So one question that really gets to the heart of what you're saying is, could Obama have been a strong candidate with a more Bernie Sanders style message in um, in 2012? Was that there at that point? And you know, I, I think like in 2012, I would have told you no, that is total lunacy. And after observing what happened in 2016, I, I would soften that a little bit. So this big question about the re-election prospects of a left-wing populist President Obama is predicated on the possibility of issue-based voting, by which I mean that voters think carefully about issues when they're deciding for whom to vote. In particular, in this case, the idea is that voters would have looked at the issue stances adopted by a left-wing populist President Obama and would have rejected them and in turn rejected him. This idea is reasonable in theory, but... There's also a lot of evidence in research on voting behavior that suggests people are not issue voters. Uh, so when we say issue voting, uh, what we mean is that people have a particular stance on an issue. They compare that stance to what they perceive some politician as have the stance that some poli other politician is having, and then kind of make a calculated judgment about how close they are. Um, a lot of evidence that people don't really do that. Uh, people don't know a lot about uh, their own stances on issues in many respects. 
uh, a lot of evidence, again, that people don't have well-formed preferences about things like that, but also people don't particularly clearly understand what it is that uh, political candidates uh, think about particular issues. Uh, really, what a lot of research suggests is that the overriding factor is party identification. Uh, you look at the politician, look at what party there are, they belong to, and then you look at your own partisanship. That is really sort of the uh, primary mover, so to speak. So most of the time when people decide who to vote for, there isn't really this calculation of, well, is uh, President Obama clear, uh, closer to me or is Mitt Romney closer to me? It's really sort of, am I a Democrat or a Republican? Therefore, which candidate am I going to vote for? Am I going to vote for the Democrat or Republican? So it's kind of a matter of um, partisan matching. Uh, the American public or uh, voting electorates more broadly are less responsive to specific issues than they are to the symbolism that's associated with those issues and the, the group implications of pursuing uh, those issues, who, which groups appear to be favored as opposed to disfavored. That's Vincent Hutchings, who is a professor of political science at the University of Michigan. So um, it's not inconceivable that if pitched appropriately, um, a president could have gone after at least some of those things. So certainly in the case of uh, going after Wall Street in the aftermath of the Great Recession, it's... Uh, that would have been a pretty popular position to adopt. It's, so the fact that, that Obama didn't do it, it's hard to argue that, well, the public wouldn't have stood for it. Actually, the public would have been quite happy with that. Even given that uh, people don't really uh, vote on the issues, there's a lot of evidence, surprising evidence to many people, that uh, the average American is what we refer to in political science as uh, operationally liberal. So particularly on issues related to the role of government, they're farther to the left and want the government to do more stuff, and in particular to rein in Wall Street and the power of the wealthy more than we suspect. We often think that uh, people are very conservative about uh, those things, given that people are more likely to call themselves conservatives than liberals. But the real contradiction or the, uh, the irony is that people uh, tend to uh, take fairly liberal positions. And an important part of this is that politicians, when you ask actual elected officials what they think the public thinks, they tend to see the public as more conservative than they actually are. So even if people were uh, paying attention to issues or voting more on the basis of issues than they actually do, there's some suggestion that uh, people might tolerate greater uh, liberalism in terms of the positions of candidates uh, than we think. But 2012 was a really remarkable election in the sense that a sitting president, an incumbent president, won a smaller share of the vote than in the, the previous time and still won re-election. That almost never happens. The last time that happened was, was in fact, was FDR in 1940. And in 1944, when he ran for unprecedented third and fourth terms. So usually when the, when the incumbent president loses vote share, they just lose altogether. And then otherwise, you know, we see like Eisenhower, Nixon, Clinton, Reagan, Bush, um, George W. Bush, you know, they, they, they build their coalition between the first and second election. 
that and Obama that didn't happen. So that we're already looking at, I think, a more precarious reelection than we, you know, normally we normally would with a president under those political conditions. And I think that has to do with the strength of partisanship, and I think that has to do with the the disintegration and trust of institutions. But let's be let's be honest here. This is probably the longest I've ever gone talking about Obama without talking about race. And we actually do have some evidence that over the uh, eight years that uh, Barack Obama was president, that there was a bit of sorting on the basis of racial attitudes among white folks. So uh, there were a number of white folks with relatively negative views of African Americans who still regarded themselves as Democrats at uh, the beginning of Obama's presidency, but who by the end of the Obama presidency had kind of sorted themselves out of the Democratic Party, either becoming independents or uh, Republicans. So there is some evidence that um, uh, there was some churn along those lines going on at that time. I did a study with one of my grad students of, um, of Twitter usage in the 2012 election, which was like super new and, you know, whatever. And we wrote a book chapter about that. And one of the things we found is that after the election, people, sort of conservative figures on the on the right, people like Michelle Malkin, um, not so much like the Romney or the RNC, but these sort of media types, talked a lot about Santa Claus. You know, it's it's hard to win an election when your opponent is Santa Claus and like promises things promises things to people for free. And we all know the racial connotations of that, and you know, the literature on. Um, that connection between race and welfare politics. So that's like the most obvious angle, I think, for what might have gone um, awry for Obama politically if he'd embraced a more populist, um, more populist message. But interestingly, the the West critique really focuses on on not so much on redistribution, but on the kind of going after economic elites on Wall Street. And I could see this going a couple ways. And on the one hand, I think one of the things that we learned in 2016 from the success of Bernie Sanders at winning a lot of primary votes is that there are many people who are still really angry at uh, Wall Street at the idea of economic inequality. People are becoming more aware of that inequality. And I think that it's probably politically it's an easier case to go after Wall Street people than to talk about the actual redistribution of wealth. At the same time, I think there's an there's an underappreciated element of what the racism around Obama's presidency was. And I think a lot of that has to do with people's discomfort at an inversion of how they understood power. Um, and I think this does a little bit to help us explain why people like candidate Obama more on balance than they liked President Obama. As a candidate, Obama was an you know, an outside figure, he was inspiring, but he didn't actually have power yet. One of the things we see is that every time Obama tried to link his presidential power, his position, his capacity to speak to the electorate, every time he tried to even kind of relate that to racial issues, talking about saying, you know, if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon, people lost their minds. And I could see that that dynamic playing out in a kind of anti-Wall Street thing too, right? This idea that, well, this person is going to go after the existing power structure and really use his presidential power to to go after 
the existing order of how we understand things to be, that that might have not played out well politically. So I think I think it's complex, right? I think there's a, there's just sort of obvious stories in American politics, and then there are the stories that often aren't told because they're just lurking beneath the surface all the time. We very rarely observe them in action. Shifting gears, what if President Obama had been more forceful in his comments about police shootings of unarmed black men? That's an issue that would have been far more dicey. Obviously, our country is divided when it comes to issues of race, perhaps more so than anything else. Indeed, uh, undeniably more so than on the basis of any other kind of demographic dimension. So by addressing this issue, it would have been politically uh, courageous and maybe even politically appropriate, or at least morally appropriate. But there would have been costs. There's no denying that in the first or second term, whether the president's name is Obama or Trump or anything else, the American public would have, on, on average, which is to say, to, to be less coy about it, most white Americans would not have been sympathetic to such an approach. Now, the question, though, is uh, just how much of a difference it would have made for Obama to have been more forceful in his a condemnation of police shootings of unarmed black men than he was. Um, the fact of the matter was that uh, he was African-American. And uh, to many of his political opponents, that was always going to be something that they were going to highlight, and they were going to kind of dwell on it uh, in a way that would activate uh, whites with uh, hostile views of African Americans. So there is this line of evidence in political science um, that suggested that uh, anything that became associated with Obama, any policy, even things that had nothing to do with race on their surface, became racialized in the sense that they, uh, people's attitudes toward them became highly related to how they felt about African Americans. So one thing I would be concerned about, to make a long story short, is that uh, given his identity and his historic role as the first African American president, um, there was probably going to be a tendency to see him as more extreme on those things no matter what he did. And, of course, there is some evidence in public opinion research that uh, people invariably see, or white folks, excuse me, invariably see uh, black uh, political candidates as being further to the left, especially on racial issues, uh, than they actually are. So the president who might be able to take a more racially liberal stand on, well, a more liberal stand on issues of race, might be uh, a white president. To some extent, um, you can make that argument. I don't know how far I would necessarily go with that, though. I think there's less evidence speaking to that. I think the uh, main point I would make is that with Obama, he was probably going to be perceived as leaning left on race no matter what he did. With profound gratitude and great humility, I accept your nomination for presidency of the United States. In 2008, Obama successfully navigated the Democratic presidential nominating process. 
Vincent Hutchings has some thoughts on how one does that. When candidates are vying for, uh, uh, you know, who's going to become the nominee of the party for a particular office, let's say the presidency, voters do not get access to shortcuts that allow them to assess which candidate is best reflective of their point of view. That shortcut is typically party, which is to say, in an ordinary general election, if I know one of the candidates has a big R by his or her name and another candidate has a big D by his or her name, I can infer a number of things about the groups that they are aligned with, the policies that they support, etc. In a primary, on the other hand, it's harder to know that for not just the average voter, but even for a diligent voter, tracking down the information, discerning the differences between candidate one versus candidate two versus candidate seven. Uh, that's hard to do. And so how do candidates therefore stand out? Well, sometimes it's by being the most bombastic. Yeah, throw them out. Throw them out into the cold. You know, don't give them their coat. No coats. Sometimes it's by being the most bombastic, or sometimes it's by being the most charismatic. So in love. Those guys didn't think I would do it. I told you I was going to do it. Sometimes it's by being the most bombastic, or sometimes it's by being the most charismatic, or uh, factors which perhaps on their face shouldn't be relevant for who's the best candidate, nevertheless can rise to the fore in the absence of partisanship as a, as a means by which to assess the substantive differences between the candidates. Your mentioning charisma leads me to wonder if you worry, as I do, about the prospect of yet another celebrity president, say, Oprah. Well, I'd be happy to speak to uh, the issue in the news recently about Oprah Winfrey, but I think a a better example is actually Barack Obama, um, in that in the absence of party labels, the the point I was making isn't peculiar to the Republican uh, uh, part of the electorate. In the absence of party labels, people have to rely on other criteria in order to assess candidates. And so Obama was a very effective, uh, you know, orator and a kind of a charismatic figure in that regard and sufficiently new on the political scene that he hadn't made enough enemies to derail his political ambitions. Uh, But he was remarkably inexperienced. He had served. He hadn't even served a, a full term in the Senate, and previously he had mere, merely been a state senator. Um, he was running against someone who had been uh, a long, well, a senator who had at least been elected to a second term. And in addition to being a kind of a very active uh, first lady in a previous White House, so um, uh, and Obama was, of course, quite young, relatively speaking, for a president. So the fact that so it's easy to look at Trump and he's a he's just, he's an historically unpopular president and to point to his lack of expertise and Obama had been elected to office so I don't want to push this too far 
but it is fair to say that Obama was hardly the most um, qualified candidate for the office. He hadn't even served, again, a full term in the Senate. But uh, because of other qualities that made him stand out, many people were drawn to his candidacy. And that's at least in some respects similar to uh, Trump and similarly with respect to Oprah Winfrey. Um, ideally, we would want perhaps candidates to be selected based on a judgment regarding their uh, policy platform, their relative experience, their um, ability to work with others, etc. Um, but in the absence of party labels, it's easy to have the process devolve into a popularity contest. As we move toward the conclusion, and as I think about the big question of whether a left-wing populist Barack Obama would have been a one-term president, I can imagine that progressives, perhaps including Cornell West, might be critical of my question itself, because it's really a question about electability. And I could imagine that some progressives might criticize me as someone who likes to think of himself as a progressive for worrying so much about electability, because if you worry that much about electability, if the Democratic Party worries that much about electability, the result may be uninspiring, moderate candidates who won't actually pursue a progressive agenda. Here are some thoughts on that from the people with whom I spoke. Two things about that. Uh, one thing I would say is that uh, you have to worry about electability. There's really no practical way of uh, avoiding that issue or kind of retreating into a cocoon of ideological purity. Um, there will be massive political cost to that. I think we can see some of that uh, in the aftermath of the 2016 election. Now, on the other hand, I think one implication of some of the stuff that we've talked about today is that uh, people uh, may be worrying about some of the wrong things when they worry about what makes a candidate unelectable. So I think for a generation of Democrats, you know, 1990s Democrats, the overriding fear having experienced the 1980s and uh, Reagan, Bush, and so on and so forth was that uh, the Democratic Party was too liberal, uh, liberalism is a killer, being too far left is a killer. And there was really sort of this uh, understanding of electability that focused on ideological positioning and to some extent issue positioning and kind of interpreted the elections of the 1980s as being totally a matter of uh, the general public rejecting uh, the ideological liberalism of the Democratic Party. Now, uh, one thing we know from a lot of research is that uh, ideological extremity, to the extent that it matters in election outcomes, presidential election outcomes in particular, it matters uh, far less than, you know, what political scientists like to refer to as the fundamentals, and those are basically, you know, the state of the economy at the time of the election and how popular the incumbent is. Um, those things matter a lot more. In the effort to follow public opinion, any politician can, in some cases, pursue what might be regarded as progressive policies or conservative policies, because there are some things on which the public 
on average, tends to be very uh, liberal, let's say, with respect to, oh, uh, income distribution, uh, minimum wage, uh, gun control. Those are pretty liberal, popular positions. But they're also conservative on some other things I could mention, prayer in school, uh, issues of race, etc. So um, if a president or any politician is interested in following, then uh, there's some merit in your concern. But to the extent that that same individual might be interested in leading, uh, which is to say moving people in a direction they might not have initially anticipated, however challenging that may be, uh, then if a politician is identified who wants to do that, then this would not be an insurmountable problem, by which I mean uh, if one is sufficiently creative and persistent, one could fashion... Uh, a winning coalition that would support a progressive or, for that matter, a conservative set of policies. Some candidates have uh, the moxie, as it were, to pursue to be a leader on that dimension, and some do not. Some are more interested in following and playing it safe. Where West critiques don't resonate very much with me is like, Obama, both as a human being and then occupying this office of the presidency, it's hard for me to imagine what this this would have looked like what West is describing. Um, but I think that some of his read of kind of Obama's character is pretty accurate. And, I, you know, it's not an accident that someone with those, with that outlook and those characteristics would become president, you know, would work through, through the system and be, you know, be someone who could really ascend through the ranks of the democratic party very, very quickly. You know, so to me, it's just, it's hard to imagine that Obama would have been, more forceful on those issues. I also think it's quite possible that, again, given how how relatively close the 2012 election was, and given how that his coalition was already starting to to disintegrate a little bit, that that might have cost him re-election. But it's it, you know it's hard to know. As we leave those issues behind and look to the future. I wonder, when you look at the Democratic Party, do you see the populist wing or the more centrist wing as ascendant at the moment? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. <laughs> um, so I think, I guess, you know, thinking about this from a you know purely analytical perspective, um, but also as, you know, as someone who's concerned that the Democratic Party and really that in an ideal world that both parties ought to be concerned with um with racial justice but um with you know not clear that that's going to happen um one concern that i think is is there for me is that you have this centrist wing i'm going to for short call these the the biden would have won people mm-hmm. and then on the other side the bernie would have won people who want the party to move to the left left particularly on economic issues my concern is that those two wings of the party will actually work to edge out candidates of color and take voters of color for granted. There's a political scientist, Paul Freimer, who's written some work about how parties have have, have traditionally taken black voters for granted and have been able to benefit from their votes and then not really address any concerns that might be specific to that to that community. And I can kind of see, like, that's my concern about the Democratic Party is that, that it's going to go in that in that direction. And I guess the way that this links back to Obama is, I think the, the main lesson of Obama's presidency is that 
is the depth of of white supremacy in in the political system and the and the extent to which people are willing to make those kinds of compromises to win um and that that's not something that ended in in 1965 or at any other time All right folks that's it But before I go I just want to say that At the time that I planned this episode, I thought the answer to the big question was obvious. I thought there's no way that Barack Obama could have been a left-wing populist and managed to get re-elected in 2012. But these interviews have complicated my thoughts on this. If voters really don't vote based on issues, or if they would do so in an operationally liberal fashion more so than we might think if they did then maybe the cost to him, the political cost, wouldn't have been as great as I might have thought. But if Julia Azari is right about the disintegrating coalition and about the role of race, then maybe those costs still might have been enough to deny Obama re-election. In any case, I'm eager to see if one of our major parties, and between the two the smart monies on the Democrats, uh, is going to pursue an agenda that takes racial justice seriously and doesn't take black voters for granted. At any rate, that's it for Tatter. I want to thank Julia Azari, Christopher Federico, and Vincent Hutchings for taking the time to talk with me. And as always, I want to thank you for listening. Be well.